you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? It's good to be with you, Sozo. Um, it's always an honor and a privilege. My name is Mark. My wife and I, who is that wonderful lady who was just up here, uh, we serve as the lead pastors here at Sozo. And uh, I want to thank you all. I know many of you are praying for us. We were gone this week uh, in Portland, got away to uh, our, our regional, or rather our global pastors conference. Uh, we as a church are a part of an organization, a fellowship of pastors called MFI, Ministers Fellowship International out of Portland, Oregon. It was a chance to just get away and uh, to hear from some amazing uh, pastors and leaders. And, and just really quickly, the, the one thing I wanted to just uh, kind of point out, two things that I, I thought of this week just as I was there. Uh, first off, it's amazing how our partnership with an organization like MFI means that uh, uh, this little church in Spokane is actually having a huge impact in churches and ministries all over the world. Um, to, to get to meet with and talk with pastors literally from all over the country uh, and to hear stories about what God's doing because of the work of MFI is pretty amazing and it's wonderful. Uh, and I think it's something we should, we should be proud of and be excited to be a part of. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the second thing, and I say this in no boast or in no uh, sense to try to puff us up, but man, I love this church. <laughs> Um, it's, it's great to go and to be other places and to hear other things and to, to hear from other people and to, to worship in, in different styles and with different uh, emphases, emphases, emphasize, emphysemas. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's great. It's wonderful. And I love it. But there's something about being home. Amen. And uh, I'm, I'm so thankful, so grateful for those that, that work and serve and uh, make this place all that it is. So thanks for all you do. Um, this is a service where we've already done a lot. Amen. And so we, we don't want to rush through the next piece, though, uh, in, in, in turning our attention and our affection to God's word. So we're, we're going to do that. I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to jump right in. We're in a series, if you're a guest with us, we're walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're in chapter 5, just starting chapter 5. This is a good time to be here. If you've got a Bible or one of those supercomputer phones, uh, you can go to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Uh, we're we're going to be here this morning. Uh, however, before we get to that, as I often do, I want to just read a few other verses uh, just to kind of get in our hearing and get in our understanding so that we can sort of wrestle through this text in the context of the Bible at large. So if you got your Bibles or a phone and you got the Bible out and ready to go, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is uh, Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. I'll just go ahead and read these to us this morning. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what God says. He says, I dwell in the high and the holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then jumping to the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.10 says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen? Amen. Now let's go to John chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read through 1 through 9. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Everybody say Bethesda. Come on, say Bethesda. Bethesda, which, which has five roof port, uh, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning for your word. Jesus, I thank you that you are a God that draws near, that dwells with those who suffer, to draws near and dwells with those who are hurting and in pain. And God, I thank you that you're a God who still moves just like you did in this story to heal and to restore and to redeem and to make whole those who desperately are in need of you. And so God, we ask this morning that you do just that, that as we turn our attention and our affection to your word, as we set our eyes upon what you have spoken to us, God, I pray that your spirit would bring life to what we have just read. Do that thing that you do where you make these words written so many years ago come alive in our hearing, that they might transform the way we think, that they might change the way we perceive the world, that they might alter our perception and our perspective. God, lift our eyes to see from the vantage point of heaven. Lift our understanding beyond just the natural realm to see that which is unseen. God, be glorified and exalted. Transform us. Let us leave this place, not just hearing the word, but being doers of the word for the good of all people and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Come on, everybody said? Come on, high five a few people and go ahead and grab a seat. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, well, this, this morning, uh, I, I want to just jump right into our text. Uh, last week, we dealt with some textual issues. I'm not going to go back over any of those. Uh, for the six of you who really enjoyed that, you're welcome. For the rest of you, I'm sorry. We just had to get it done. Um, and so we, we made our way through looking at some of these issues. If, you, if you're curious where verse four is in this passage, listen to last, last week's message. Uh, we covered it there. Um, but, but this morning, I wanna jump in and just deal with the text and walk through the story here a little bit under the title, under the, the, the umbrella of a place of grace. The, the name Bethesda, the name of this little area, this pool, uh, literally means in Aramaic, uh, a house or a place or a dwelling 
of grace and mercy. And so I want to look at this together this morning uh, as, we, as we walk through this text. Um, I originally thought we would move through this text very quickly and it would be really easy. And now I'm pretty sure we're going to be here for a month or two. So uh, I wasn't joking. That was just by way of information sharing with you how long it'll take. Um, but I want us to see here that, that I want us to look at Jesus first. Jesus here reaches out to this man in compassion because of his suffering. He reaches out in compassion towards suffering. And, and this is a, a huge piece of the story that I think if we miss, we will misunderstand what's really going on here. And I think it addresses an issue that we often seem to pass over. Jesus here recognizes both the level and the length of this man's suffering. And that's what causes him to draw near to the man. Jesus responds because he sees the man's suffering. We need to understand that, that we serve a God who desires to ransom those corrupt by sin. Amen? We talk about that a lot here at this church. We, we serve a God who, who, who left heaven and came to earth to ransom those who have been corrupted by the power of sin. He responds that way. But also, he desires to restore those captured by shame and suffering. And if all we ever talk about is God's uh, wrath and redemption towards sin, but we, we leave out his, his heart to restore those who have suffered, we're missing a part of the heart of God. Suddenly, if, if all we look at is that aspect of the heart of God, his, his wrath and response, his, his redemption, his reconciliating, reconciling work done by Jesus, if all we do is see that piece of God, then really what we see God as is some sort of a bookkeeper who's just sort of trying to balance the books. But when we realize that also part of the heart of God is to draw near to those who are in pain. We recognize that there's more going on in the cross than just bookkeeping. There's more going on in the cross than, than we may perceive otherwise. And so Jesus draws near to this man. He shows us the heart of the Father. So the cross then deals both with our, our, our sin, but also with the shame and suffering that comes from sin. God is near. In fact, we read in Isaiah, he actually dwells with those who are in pain those who suffer. So when we're walking through difficult seasons of our life, when we're facing loss, when we're having to confront the, the, the reality and the ramification of sin, not only the sins that we may have committed ourselves, resulting in pain, but come on somebody, how many of us know sometimes sin is sinned upon us and we bear in our own bodies and in our own spirit the wounds or the scars of that sin that sinned upon us and God responds to that sin, come on, as well to restore, to bring about healing and wholeness. So, so let that be the lens through which you see Jesus' interaction with this man. He cares about him. He recognizes his suffering. He recognizes his pain. And that's actually the thing that causes Jesus to step out and begin to speak to the man, to, to draw near to him. It is his suffering. That's Jesus. Do you got Jesus now? You see his lens? You see his perspective? What's interesting is the man then responds by complaining about his situation and criticizing the system. Jesus walks up to him, he, he engages with this man, and the man simply begins to grumble and to complain and to gripe and to blame his perception of the system. Just in case you missed last week, in case you're unfamiliar with the story, verse four 
that's not in the ESV and many other uh, modern English translations, but is found in the King James because it's in a few uh, uh, later manuscripts, which were the best ones that the King James had at the time. I promise I'm not preaching the message. It's okay. Um, but uh, th- there's, this, there's this insertion about what I believe was a superstition of the day, that this pool would bubble up at times, and they took that as an angel coming down and stirring up the waters, and they thought whoever got to the water first after the, after the bubbles started, that person got to be healed. And so he gripes about that, that, that system. Well, I can't get down there because I'm crippled and nobody can help me and, and all these problems. And he complains and he grumbles and he gripes. How many of you know that pain has a way of clouding our vision and corrupting our virtue? Well, if you've ever struggled with chronic pain, chronic suffering, I'm not just talking about a bump your toe and it hurts, but, but I'm talking about chronic pain. It has a way of, of, of messing with the way you see reality. Things don't look right anymore. You don't have the ability to perceive. This is part of the danger of chronic pain and chronic suffering is you start to see reality wrong. But you know the problem, the biggest problem with deception is how deceiving it is. The biggest problem with not seeing things right is you think you're seeing things right. Does anybody have a teenager? Come on. <laughs> you, you think you're seeing the world correctly, but you're not. <laughs> so first I have to, before I can tell you what the world is really like, I have to tell you that how you see it is really wrong, and I have to convince you that you are wrong. This guy is corrupted by this. His, his suffering, makes, makes, suffering makes us bad at seeing things right. Suffering makes us bad at perceiving the, the facts and the details accurately. So, so that's why I would even say even more than maybe the average person, these people were inclined to believe that bubbling water was actually an angel and that if they got down there first, they would get healed. The pain also has a, a way of, of making us cranky. Or more accurately, pulling out of us the cranky that's already there. <laughs> Um, my, my grandma used to tell me all the time that nobody can make you something, they can just draw out of you what you already are. <laughs> I didn't like that, it bothered me. Um, pain has a way of doing this to us. So this man's response needs to be seen in that light. His, his perception has been distorted by the acuteness of his suffering, but also by his allegiance to a supernatural superstition. So, so there's part of it is absolutely the suffering that he's going through. But, but I, I shared last week um, my belief, you can take it or leave it, but you're here, so you might as well take it. Um, my, my belief as to what verse four is really all about, where did that come from? I believe that was the held understanding at the time that, like I said, that when the bubbles happened, whether that was a natural spring or we don't really know what was going on there, when that happened, they understood that at their time as an angel coming down and stirring up the water for healing for someone. And it was, it was added later, when, once that sort of teaching sort of fell out of, of understanding, once that sort of uh, cultural narrative wasn't known by people reading the book, some later author just sort of jotted it down so that we would all kind of know what was going on so that when he says, when the water stirred, nobody gets me down there, we're not all going, what's he talking about? 
He had an allegiance to this. He had, he had tied himself to this teaching. He, he believed that this was the way that it was, that, that, that his response reveals his warped perspective, his warped perception of reality. He's living at this place because of this teaching. What I'm trying to get us to understand is that allegiance to supernatural superstition has colored his past, it controls his present, and it's corrupted his future. His allegiance to this sort of thinking has, has messed with every part of his life. And he refuses now to see anything outside of that lens. And my proposition to us this morning is many of us have done the same thing. Many of us, because of, because of whether it's suffering in our life, because of it, whether it's disappointment in our life, whether it's just discouragement, we, we align ourselves with false thinking and we make it really, really spiritual, come on, and then we blame that spirituality for our situation. And so I wanna just walk through uh, his, his, his distortions and see how Jesus in compassion and love responds to these distortions. So the first thing I said is it, it's colored his past. It's made him isolated and it made him feel insufficient. Come on, each failure, each disappointment, every time it didn't work, every time the water bubbled up and he tried to get down and he didn't get there first, it just reinforced his wrong belief. If I could have just got down there first. If just the right person would pray for me. If I would have just got that promotion, then all my problems would be solved. If she would have just said yes, if she would have just said no. <laughs> if I could have bought that thing, if I just knew this earlier, all of these things reinforce a wrong understanding of reality. See, long-term suffering, as I said, has a way of distorting our perception. Long-term chronic pain is terrible. This man has been suffering with it for 38 years. 38 years. Now, we don't know whether he's, he was born this way and he's 38 years old and that's what the story's trying to tell us or if as a young person or maybe even as a middle-aged person, judging from the average lifespan at the time, probably in his younger years, maybe at most, he might have been uh, fallen over and crippled. The, the word invalid really just means a weak in his body. We don't know exactly what his problem is. We can infer that he was crippled because that's what Jesus tells him to do is to walk and that seems to be the miracle. So we can infer, I think, rightly, that, that he was crippled. And we don't, know, we don't know how old he was when this happened or whether he was born this way, but how many of y'all know 38 years? That's a long time. That's a long time. In this society, he would have, he would have really had no uh, prospects of any kind of future. He could probably be at this pool so much because that's all he can do. He can maybe beg for, 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 for money or for food, for help from others, and he can try to get healed by going down to some supernatural water that maybe or maybe not would heal him. If maybe or maybe not, he could get down there in time. And I, I don't wanna, I wanna make sure that, that we understand that, that Jesus here is demonstrating his goodness toward this man, even though his words may appear harsh or insensitive. I mean, just, just let's be honest here. This was an area, in fact, 
we'll probably talk about this later, but they actually, for many, many years, this was one of the passages that was used by, by uh, people that, that denied the reality or the truth of the scripture because we, we'd never found this place. And so they would point out, see, the, the Bible's not historically accurate. This place never existed until 1888 when we found this place, <laughs> which is so often what happens in the scriptures with archaeology. The Bible knew before we did. Now, the reality, when you actually look at this place, it was, it was a, a pool. It wasn't very large. It, it was remarkably deep. It was about 13 meters deep. But the, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very, uh, there was no water that flowed into it or out of it. It was just sort of a, a pool of water there. So how many of you realize, if you've got a bunch of people who are crippled and sick and invalids, those who, who have disease in their bodies, all rushing to get into this water, how many of y'all think that was very clean water? Anybody want to just close your eyes for a minute and imagine that smell? We've got some warm, bubbly water and some dirty, sick people that are just floating around in it, hoping to get healed. And that's where this guy is locked into to live because that's the only place he thinks he can be healed. Pain and suffering, sin have a way of locking us in dirty, stinky places that we never really want to be. Jesus here moves out of his goodness and he walks up to this guy who's in that sort of place, in that sort of environment. Uh, for Really, the only reason anybody would be there, come on, is to get healed. And what does Jesus say to him? Do you even want to get healed? This guy hears that through the, the filter that he has of what he has to do to get healed. And so he responds, if we're being honest, a little snappy, a little crabby. And he starts to complain and grumble. But Jesus here, we need to see, is moving out of compassion, out of a heart to restore this man. He cares. What I'm trying to tell you is if you're here and you're in pain and you're suffering and you're going through a difficult season, I need you to hear me. God is near to you. He's present in the pain. He's with you in the suffering. He's working, come on, in your waiting He's doing something. Little did this man know, 38 years he's been suffering, that Jesus, come on, had left heaven and come to earth. That he had lived until roughly, he was roughly 30 years old, was baptized, was called out as the Messiah, began a ministry, traveled around, and now has come to this man to restore his dignity, to bring about healing. This man was completely ignorant of all of that going on. All he knew was that every time the water got bubbled, nobody put him in first. Jesus draws near in compassion. Suffering and supernatural superstition produce within us a sense of isolation and insufficiently, insufficiency. I'm alone. No one understands me. I'm not worth anybody's time. Come on, when you struggle with chronic pain, a chronic addiction, chronic suffering, this is what begins, come on, this is what begins to roll around in your mind, doesn't it? I'm all alone and nobody really cares to be with me anymore. I'm all by myself. I can't do it. There's nothing I can do to change my situation. I'm stuck. I'll always be this way. We say stuff like this. This always happens like this. Just when it seems to be getting better, then something bad happens and I'm stuck back in my spot.
What you need to understand is these are the lies that suffering and supernatural superstition tell us. They're not true. They're not true. Your pain and your suffering don't devalue you as a human being. They don't, they don't remove you from usefulness inside of the body of Christ. You still have a purpose. You still have a reason for being here. You're still, it's still worth getting up and, and being a part of a, of a community. In fact, you need community now probably more than ever. And yet, what does it try to do? It tries to isolate. It tries to separate. It tries to tell you you can't. And so Jesus shatters, come on, his false ideas by engaging with him and elevating his vision. That's what Jesus does. He, he walks up to him in the midst of his pain, in the, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of feeling alone, Jesus goes, hello. You're not alone anymore. You're not isolated anymore. You're not separated anymore. Jesus is present. He is there. He engages with him. He shatters the lie simply by being there. In saying that, I want us to understand uh, two, two things. Number one, if you feel alone, if you are in Christ, come on, you are never alone because he made you a promise. What's that promise? He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. We pray all the time a, a heretical prayer. You've all prayed it, probably today. Jesus, come and meet me here. Jesus is like, already here. Beat you. I'm already with you. I promise to never leave you or forsake you. It's one thing we need to understand. I think another piece to this, though, for us as Christians, as little Christs, is to realize that sometimes one of the most amazing gifts you have is your presence. When someone that you know is suffering and in pain and going through difficult times, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just go and be with them. Just go sit with them. There was a season uh, in, in the church that my wife and I served at in Montana, Hope Church, uh, in, in Kalispell, Montana, where uh, it, was, it was really a, a season I would never want to relive, to be honest. The church, as, a, as an organization, as an organism, was, was really exploding. We were growing faster and faster and faster, beyond, beyond even the pace that we could really keep up. And at the same time, we were seeing people die in our church. We had an elder lose a battle with cancer. We had one of the daughters of, of one of our staff people uh, who's only in her early 20s pass away out, out of nowhere. We saw young people passing away. And we had to walk through this suffering as a church all while it seemed like amazing things were happening. God's answering prayers about budgets and buildings, but yet we're losing people. And I had to learn as a pastor that, that, that as I sat with the husband of the daughter who passed away, the, 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 she was married to, uh, to a guy, had two kids, as I sat with him, I had to realize that, that I had none of the answers he wanted. All of my Bible knowledge and praying in tongues wasn't gonna help me give him any of the answers to the questions he threw at me as if he was a fully automatic machine gun. And you know what I had to learn in that moment? I just needed to be there. He didn't need answers to any of those questions. If I would have had them, they wouldn't have helped. You wanna know how I know? Because I had the answer for like two of them and they didn't help. <laughs> I learned a, a, a really unique skill that I wanna try to teach us as a church. Here's what you need to do in those moments. You need to say two things as you sit with people in suffering. You ready? I love you and I'm sorry. That's it. 
I just began to say this to him over and over again. As he would go, why did this happen? And what about this? And couldn't this have happened? Why didn't God? And I should, and should I do this? Or should I do that? Or that? And throwing all these questions. And all I did every time he would pause, man, I love you and I'm so sorry. I love you and I'm so sorry. I care about what you're going through and I wanna be here for you and I'm not going anywhere and your, your tears and your bleeding aren't making me leave. They're not chasing me away. I'm right here with you. And if there's anything I can do to help, I'm with you on this. And we'll walk through this however we can. And I'll cry with you and I'll hold you, whatever we gotta do, we're getting through it. That's I love you and I'm sorry. Jesus engages this man like that. He acknowledges his existence. But I also think there's something in the geography here that I think we ought not to miss. The man's crippled, which means he's lying on a bed. And Jesus is standing over him. The other thing that Jesus does for us and the other thing that we're called to do as we sit with people who suffer is in the right moment to lift their eyes. To lift their eyes. To help them come up a little bit. Because you see, not only did it color his past, it controlled his presence. He believed that God honors performance. That was what he believed. If I could get there first, then I would be healed. And we laugh at him and think he's such a, such a foolish man for believing such a foolish teaching and foolish lie, but um, we think the same way. Come on. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I forgot who, you guys are all perfect. None of y'all struggle with any of this stuff. I should go somewhere else and preach. <laughs> See, this kind of thinking makes God to be more of a judge than a father. That God is somehow up in heaven and he's basing what he's willing to do for us based upon our performance for him. If I just get down to the water first, then I would be healed. This place is the only place I can be healed, so, so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stay here. I can't leave here. This place or this person or this way of thinking is the only way I'm ever gonna get out of this situation. So it freezes us, it controls our present where we are unable to move or shift and we begin to relate to God in a performance orientation. What's interesting about this is that we're gonna see in a moment that Jesus in speaking to him requires obedience Yet this man had a misunderstanding thinking that what God required was performance. So I, I wanna just walk us through really quick to help us out here the difference between performance and obedience because, because to the fallen mind, they look the same. They look the same. So let's just walk through this. Obedience is finding ways to let the word of God dwell in you richly. Performance is quickly scanning a passage so you can check it off your Bible reading plan. Well, I gotta get up in the morning, I gotta read my Bible. Check it off the box. Obedience is seeking God with our whole heart. Performance is having a quiet time because you'll feel guilty if you don't. Or maybe, maybe this, 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 is the way, this is the way spirit people do. Well, I'm not as anointed throughout the day if I don't read my Bible in the morning. Well, I would have reached out to that person and prayed for them at work, but I didn't have my quiet time that morning, so my, 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 my power tank was a little low. 
as if your performance has anything to do with God's ability to work through you. What I find so interesting about that belief that I sometimes even fall into is that in my early walk with the Lord, my, my, I'll be honest, my, my discipline was horrible and yet God still used me. But now I think because I know more, I have to do more. I just wanna seek the Lord with my whole heart. Obedience is doing our best. Performance is wanting to be the best. Powerful difference. Obedience is following the prompting of God's spirit. Performance is following a list of man-made requirements. Don't eat this, don't touch this, don't walk there, don't talk there, don't talk to those people. But I think really it all boils down to this, this if I'm gonna be honest, and if you wanna dive into this a little bit for yourself, Galatians chapter four, verses one through seven, study this out a little bit. Obedience flows from a love of God as father. Performance flows from a fear of God as judge. See, the cross is about reorienting us so that we can relate to God as father and not as judge. Is God a judge? Yes. But is that the way he wants us to relate to him? No. He wants us to relate to him, according to Galatians 4, as a father. He puts his spirit within us. He adopts us, makes us sons. Legally, we are sons. Amen? Now, we, we've talked about this before. Ladies, you are a son of God. The New Testament does not give language for women to get to be daughters of God. Ladies, you are sons of God because sons get an inheritance. And God wants you to know you have an inheritance. Come on, somebody. And just to make it equally offensive, all the gentlemen in the room, we all get to be the bride of Christ. So I'll say it again. Ladies, if you are uncomfortable being a son of God, trust me, I am far more uncomfortable being a bride. Nobody wants to see me in a wedding dress. Okay? So that one always gets a lot of amens. Um, so God wants us to relate to him, not as judge, but as father. So, so he says he makes us a son, and then to, to prove it, he puts his spirit within us, which cries out, Abba, father. He wants us to relate to him as a father. So we need to see this. We have to abandon performance to learn obedience. I'm going to say that again. You have to abandon performance so that you can learn obedience. We are taught performance from the moment we are born. Put your best foot forward. Are you going to wear that? <laughs> don't talk that way. Don't walk that way. Don't behave that way. Don't, don't, don't embarrass me. <laughs> We're taught performance from day one. And what, what Jesus is after here is, listen, he's not interested in your performance. He wants to teach you obedience. Because you see, when Jesus speaks, we respond When Jesus speaks, we respond, okay? If you signed up for anything else in Christianity, you got lied to. That's the deal. Jesus speaks, we respond. It's why, little, pull back the curtain here for a second, it's why we structure our services the way we do. We preach, we teach the word, and then we give time at the end to respond. Because my hope is that you'll learn how to do it here so that out there it becomes second nature. So that when you hear, whether that's in your own time, uh, being with Jesus in the word in the morning that you have to do, <laughs> as you spend time with Jesus in his word, as you read it, come on, you learn to respond to it. 
but also as you go about your day, you learn to hear his voice and respond to it. Just be obedient. See, we're all tied up. Performance, here's another difference I should have put in the list. Performance is worried about outcome. Obedience is just worried about obedience. I'm just gonna do whatever he says. The outcome is 100% on him. He calls, me to pray. he calls me to pray for somebody, I pray for them. What if they don't get healed? I wasn't, I'm just told to pray for them. I'm not gonna get tied up in the outcome, I'm just gonna be obedient. See, oh, I gotta go here. See, we like to be tied up in the outcome because then when the outcome does happen the way we want it, we get to take credit for it. <laughs> totally knew that oh, that was me. It's because I had my quiet time this morning. <laughs> Sick people are gonna get healed this week. I served in kids' ministry. So, I mean, <laughs> pretty high bar. God owes me one. Um, see, Jesus' voice demands obedience. Though I need you to get this. Because of his goodness. Jesus' voice demands obedience because of goodness. How many of you know parents? Okay, how many, how, if you're a parent in the room and you have little kids, little kids, how many of you realize that you know better than them? There comes a day, especially, first it happens in math, where you don't know better than them. <laughs> my daughter likes to remind me that she's more educated than me now so because she's a senior in high school and um, <laughs> problem is it's true she is more educated than me now uh, don't do drugs stay in school um, just, I was just free uh, we know better the burner is hot and shiny and looks neat but touching it will hurt I mean we we need to get that we have a father in heaven who knows better. <laughs> and even when we don't understand it, he knows better. So us, us this is the thing. If we, if we still are in a performance paradigm, if we're still holding to supernatural superstitions, then we think God telling us to not do something or to do something flows from some sort of controlling nature in God. And that could not be farther from the truth. He, he gives us commandments. He calls us to things. He speaks to us and demands a response for our good born out of his goodness. In a moment, Jesus is going to turn to this man and tell him to do something that is fundamentally impossible. And that comes out of the goodness of God. We have to see this. We have to see this. Jesus moves now to dealing with this man's brokenness. Because you see the, 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 the allegiance to supernatural superstition that this man has has caused a corruption of his future. He thinks he will never walk. It is this way. It will always be this way. This is where I'm stuck. This is my lot in life. And here's what I need you to see. His brokenness, our brokenness as well, produces blindness. Brokenness produces Blindness. This is such a, a hugely important piece to what sin does in our life that I, I want to just take a moment and make sure you get this. 
because I think it'll help for, the, for, the, for those who, 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 are, who are not following Christ right now. I, I need you to hopefully get this, and I, I also understand that as I'm saying this, if the Spirit doesn't work in your heart, this is a moot point to you. But if he does, I believe it can be life to you. And for those of you who are following Christ and desiring to see those who don't know Jesus come to a place of encounter with him, you've got to get this. People who are outside of Christ are blind to him. We find out later in this story, dude, even after Jesus heals him, has no clue who he is. It's a picture of our blindness. Literally, the human embodiment of God himself, healing personified, walks up to the man and says, do you want to be healed? And he gripes and complains. Why? Because he doesn't know who's standing in front of him. He's blind to it. Not only does sin cause humanity to be bent toward sin, but it makes us blind to the goodness of God unless God steps in and restores sight to us. This brokenness has caused him to be blind. Crippling disillusionment has killed hope in this man. Hope deferred and deferred and deferred. Think about how many times in 38 years he's tried to get down to that water. 30, how many times do you think that happened a week? How many times that happened a day? Hope deferred and hope deferred has killed his hope and replaced it with a crippling, a crippling not only of his body, but a crippling disillusionment that he will always be this way, stuck on this bed, fighting for a healing that will never come. But this is the only way, this is the only place, this is the only thing I can do. But he can't see the healing that's standing right in front of them. So therefore, Jesus, in his goodness, breaks through. It's actually quite interesting to me as I studied out this text because Jesus doesn't do what he so often does with people in this sort of a situation. He doesn't walk him through all the necessary pieces of his understanding. He simply recognizes that this man's brokenness and this man's suffering is at such a level that none of that is going to, to be of any value. He just deals with the problem. He supernaturally bypasses the man's understanding, bypasses the man's learning, bypasses the man's arguments, and just goes, let's just deal with the problem. Let's just get to the, 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 the root of what's going on here. He recognizes his blindedness and confronts it by what we said earlier. He tells the guy to do something that the dude just told him he couldn't do. He's like, I can't even, I don't have anybody to carry me down to the water and I can't drag my cripple self down there. Now we don't know at all. Remember, all we know is he's weak in his body. This guy could be a quadriplegic for all we know. We have no idea, he's, he's weak in his body. Again, inferring without much pushing on the text at all, he can't walk. At least his legs don't work. And Jesus... <laughs> Jesus not only tells him to get up, but then he tells him, carry something. We laugh. This dude would probably respond with, go away. That's mean. 
I mean, how many of you want to walk up to a lady at Walmart in a wheelchair and go, you should really walk around? By the way, unless you hear darn near the audible voice of God, don't ever do that. I've been at too many healing services, okay? Just don't. And that's exactly what Jesus does, though. Insensitive, mean. The guy's probably like, well, that's just your colonial mindset because you have legs and walk and you have walking privilege. It's your walking privilege that's here to tell me I have to walk. The guy's probably thinking, dude, why don't you pick me up and carry me down to the water? Do that. Jesus just bypassed all. No, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He does this, though. What did we say? Why does he do it? His goodness. Because what he's doing is he's requiring him to carry the bed that once used to hold him to the ground. Not only does he heal him, not only does he restore back his ability to walk, not only does he, he supernaturally teach him how to walk. Does anybody get that? Yeah, I mean, you know what atrophy is. The guy had never used his legs. He had no muscles in his legs. It takes most human beings about a year to learn how to walk. Some of you are trying to figure that out in your head right now. Really? Yeah, you're not, you don't walk until you're about a year old. That's all I was saying. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> People are like, What? Yeah, you know, they're teaching babies in China how to speak Chinese. It's really amazing. Um, I'm an adult. I can't even do it. Um, <laughs> the jokes don't get any better. Um, the guy's muscles are restored. His ability to walk is restored. And even his awareness of how to walk is suddenly taught to him in an instant. This is a miracle. <laughs> Jesus steps in and does this and then says, you know what? You're gonna pick up that thing that used to hold you to the ground. You're gonna carry that thing. What I'm trying to get us to see, we've talked about this before. In healing, he receives a new identity and he's given new abilities, just like us. As a believer, you can do things. You are something you were not before. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner saved by grace for a nanosecond when you were saved. Now you're a son of God. That's where you say amen. amen. <laughs> you're like, mm, yeah, okay. Do you know that that was impossible a moment before it happened? But because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, having nothing to do with your performance, you were transferred in a moment from being a sinner to being a son of God, never to return to being a sinner again. You're a son. You go, well, I sin, but that's not who you are. And you don't have to anymore. You're free. You are given a new identity, son of God, and you're given new abilities. You can carry stuff that used to hold you down. You're fundamentally made somebody new. Caterpillar one moment, Butterfly the next. Can a butterfly walk? Can a caterpillar fly? So a butterfly's or ability to walk does not deny its capacity to fly. Jesus tells this man, get up, walk, carry your mat. Because that's what Jesus does.
He heals and he restores. That's what grace does. It heals and it restores. Lest we think that Jesus just stepped into this guy's story to wallow in self-pity with him. Is God near the brokenhearted? Does our brokenness keep God away from us? Is God okay with leaving us broken? Both have to be there or it's not grace. No, 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 we're gonna get real. Both have to be there or it's not Jesus. If your Jesus is just willing to sit with you and wallow in self-pity and not change anything, oh, okay, okay, not require anything of you, that's not Jesus. That's blonde, feathered hair, blue-eyed, white Jesus who doesn't have any power to save you. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible draws near to us in our brokenness and calls us out of it. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to move to our response that we hinted at earlier. A chance to respond in obedience to what God has spoken to us. And, and I want to make sure that, that I'm being as absolutely clear as I possibly can be. If you're here and you've struggled through pain and suffering, here's what I don't want you to hear. It's your fault. You should have just done something about it. That's what that guy believed. Here's what I don't want you to hear. If you would have just done something better or just had the right person pray for you, you'd be healed already. That's what that guy believed. That's not the truth. What I want you to hear is that Jesus draws near to you in your brokenness. And our response should simply be to listen and obey whatever he says and leave the outcome in his hands. Our response should simply be to, to, to wait upon him and trust his goodness in all things. To trust that, that his, his goodness is toward us in Jesus. Come on, church. If the suffering ends today in a moment as we receive prayer, praise God. Suffering continues until such a time as he would choose to heal. Praise God. Because grace will empower us to walk in obedience regardless of outcome. Because that's what Jesus does. So this morning as we respond, we are going to respond as we do each time we gather together. Contemplation in celebration and in communion. In contemplation, in, in, in taking some time to sit, to stand, to be still. And to just let that still small voice of Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Maybe bring correction where correction's needed. Bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Maybe to just stop for 30 seconds for the first time in a week and just be quiet. 
contemplate, to think, to allow God to speak. We also respond in celebration and singing and rejoicing in who he is and declaring back to him the very praises that are due his name. And then in communion, communion we do in two separate ways in the traditional classic understanding of communion in celebrating the Lord's uh, uh, table. We take by a method known as antiquation where we take a piece of bread or wafer with no, the gluten-free wafers and dip it in the juice. We do have, as always, a station all the way to my left, your right, that is as gluten-free as we can make it. There's no bread on that table. I wanna be clear, these tables are open to any and all who've put their faith in Christ. If you've repented and believed the gospel, we welcome you to partake in communion with us as a celebration of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, proclaiming his death, the means by which redemption and reconciliation has been made. You don't have to be a member here, don't have to go through a class, don't have to be a part of a particular denomination. We welcome you to partake with us. However, if you're not a believer, if you would say you have not repented and believed the gospel, you've not put your faith in Christ, you're, the singular goal of your life is not to follow him, then we would ask you two things. Number one, that you would abstain from taking communion until such a time as you have experienced that transformation. And the second thing we would ask you is, what are you waiting for? Do you wanna be healed? Do you wanna be made whole? Do you want your sins to no longer define who you are? Do you want that shift that I talked about earlier to, to go from being a, a sinner to being a son of God, to, for, for, to belonging to your, your, your worst decision, to belonging to the very living God? It comes with a new identity and it comes with a new set of abilities. And it all happens through repentance and belief. Repentance is, is just a, a fancy word that means to admit and abandon that which is wrong. We admit once and for all that, that the way I lived my life, that the, the, the things that I, I saw, those, those things that I perceived, those things that I believed, they were wrong and they're killing me. And you abandon it, you let it go. Belief simply means to embrace Jesus, to hold on to him as the highest joy and the greatest gift of your life. And if you're here and you, you would say that's, that's what you wanna do this morning, I wanna encourage you to make your way and let somebody pray with you. Not because in the praying you will be saved, but in the responding you will. In opening up your heart and pouring out your heart to the Lord, salvation comes. And we just have people uh, that'll be over in that lit area behind the chairs. We just love to stand with you and pray with you and help you along in that journey. Those people are also there for any and all who would have any need for prayer. If you've got something going on in your life, they'd love to stand with you and pray with you. So we're gonna move toward response now. Let me pray for us just one more time. Holy Spirit, I thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for all that you do, Jesus. Thank you for your heart to draw near to the broken, to be with those who suffer. God, we celebrate you. God, I ask that you would move now in this place, in this time that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Church, let's respond to the Lord.